0: Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and I'm here with my friend Martin doing another uh, episode in the room. And Martin, this is actually your first episode, like, totally choosing the topic deserve. I barely know what we're talking about today, but I know the topic is called learned helplessness. I know a little bit about this we're going to talk about how this applies to students, how basically students are taught to be helpless in the classroom and in other areas.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it learned helplessness can lead on to several other things that we'll get into, but the moral is the we're going to talk about how it affects students primarily and then go a little bit deeper into what it can do later on as well.
0: Cool. And you read a book on this, didn't you?
1: Yes. Yeah, so rather than just Google search and just be accepting of that research I decided to go out and read a book called learned optimism how to change your mind and your life and this isn't just some nonsensy self-help book this is actually written by uh, Martin Seligman the man one of the people who founded learned helplessness and is essentially known as the father of positive psychology
0: Martin Seligman
1: so I just read a book by the guy who founded the idea to get the true story behind what it is and all the context
0: Oh okay. I feel like Anyways. I've heard of this guy before.
1: It was uh it was a super super helpful book.
0: Cool. Oh, this is an old one. Did you is it the one that from like 1991? Yes.
1: Oh, wow. Yes, incredibly insightful though. I wanted to pick it closest to being on the topic of learned helplessness. It's not his most recent book, but it more directly touches on this stuff.
0: Okay. And then you were telling me earlier that like reading this book has actually helped with some of your own issues and understanding like your own sense of optimism or pessimism, right?
1: Uh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Not only in this book were there several little personal tests that are, you know, actual psychological tests, not just BuzzFeed quizzes that showed me a little bit about myself more than most would, but reading through this book has allowed me to reflect a lot on my own thoughts that I have and my own things that have prompted me to have depressive periods Mm. or to uh, get out of those. Even just recognizing, yes, I see that that's the tactic I use sometimes that does make me feel better. And this totally explains it. So I'll make a point to keep using those.
0: Cool. So I want to get your definition of learned helplessness after doing all this research. (laughs) But um, I'll start it out with kind of how I thought of this or how I think of this issue. So if people have been reading the blog posts, I don't think I've talked about this in a video yet, um, but in the blog posts, I have mentioned several times about this concept of being a solution finder. Um, basically, being the kind of student who, when confronted with a question that you don't understand or the answer isn't immediately apparent, just like being the kind of person who will say, I'm going to go figure out what the answer is no matter what it takes. And I had, I like learned this. Uh, trial by fire style, basically, when I worked in the IT department at my university, because we had a giant database full of all the answers and solutions to most people's problems. But probably at least once a day, I'd say we'd get a call from someone who had a problem that wasn't in the database. And we weren't allowed to just be like, I don't know, just enjoy your broken computer. Sucker.
1: <laughs> yeah, you've got to actually try to figure out the problem. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, we're you know Google searching on the phone with this person. Like, hold on, man, I am gonna try to look up the answer for you. Um, one time we got a call from a lady and she said, "There's a raccoon in my porch. How do I get rid of it?" <laughs> <laughs> and That's I was a like, virus. Um, write the raccoon a very polite email. Actually, I put this on Reddit as like a, a, a there's a Reddit called Tales from Tech Support, I think. Yeah. And. I put this as a story in there and like got over a thousand upvotes. And one person's <laughs> like uh, a shotgun blast to the midsection gets most of the raccoon off the porch.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't
0: know. My uh, my solution is like a broom or something.
1: <laughs> I really feel like the solution center should have been named more IT specific so that it wasn't the solution center. Yeah. They give solutions. It does sound like nice. solutions. To my all foot's your broken. What do I do? <laughs> That's that's actually you're supposed to go to the medical center, not the solution center. It sounds reasonable. Well,
0: we were also the operator of the university. So and I never f- could figure out what the heck the operator Wait, number what? was, but like the person who was on email duty, which is the worst by the way, because you're trying to correspond back and forth in like non real time with somebody who doesn't know how to computer, uh, you also <laughs> have a headset on and when people call the operator, you pick up and a lot of times they'd be like What's the number for the solution center? <laughs> and like, oh well, this is
1: oh, that's actually a, kind that's of a, a good question. Center.
0: But yeah, I digress. Um, you know, long story short, we had to figure out the answers because that was our job, and that skill sort of transferred over to classes for me. And for the most part, I had to become the kind of person who would just be optimistic about my ability to find the answer, even if it wasn't readily apparent. And a lot of other students, I noticed would be given a problem they didn't understand. And the moment they encountered difficulty, they would immediately ask for help instead of plugging away at it and actually thinking for a while. So that's kind of where I've, you know, been thinking about this topic. But um, was it more general for you?
1: Yeah, because this, so this book isn't, it wasn't directly on the topic of education. It was just on a on a subject that can affect education. But mm. So learned helplessness is essentially when, over and over, you've been shown somehow that your attempts are futile in one or more areas. So then you learn not even to try in the future, even if it turns out later on, you could have done it if you'd tried. You just, you're used to your attempts being futile, so you don't try. Even you, though you can do it.
0: Yeah. Oh, I've heard about this in the context of like elephants, uh, like circus elephants. Oh, yes.
1: Is there an elephant test? I read about uh, several others, but not elephants.
0: Well, I don't know if it's like a test, but uh, in the circus, what I've read is when elephants are babies, they will chain them to a stake in the ground. And like when they're babies, they're not strong enough to break the chain, but like a full grown elephant could easily pull the stake out of the ground and go wherever it wants. But it's learned since it was a baby that it can't do it. So now it doesn't.
1: That is exactly learned helplessness. That is a clever way for them to enslave elephants.
0: And you had, uh, yeah. in the notes, you you like a dog story? Yeah, or so the,
1: the original uh, tests that they were using to mm-hmm. try to identify learned helplessness involved dogs. So the basic test involved, there were three sets of dogs. I can't remember how many. Let's say there were six in each group because whatever. So the first group of dogs, they were in a section of this, I kind of pictured it as a large section of gated areas. I don't really know. But the first section of dogs, they would receive a small shock, not nothing crazy, like uh, rather strong static or something. They would receive a small shock that would stop when they would, say, hit a button. They would hit the button with their nose, shock would go away. There was a second group of dogs that would also receive the shock exactly when the first group was getting it. So they're receiving the exact same shock, but when they hit a button, it does nothing their shock only stops when the first group stops it. That way, the first two Mm. groups have the exact same duration and exact same type of shock. It's just the second group can't do anything about it, even though they're trying.
0: Now, did the second group know that the first, like...
1: No, they don't know about each other. There's no causal link, okay. They don't know about each other. The second group just knows every time I hit this button, nothing happens. Mm. So that sucks. Eventually it goes away, I guess, but I can't do anything about it myself while the first group is being easily shown, I can fix it. And the third group didn't receive any shocks. They're just the control group. So after this happens, they then bring the dogs into a new environment where they're receiving a shock, and the way to escape the shock is to jump over a low barrier into Mm -hmm. another part of the place that they're in, box or something. So the dogs that had pressed the button, and it worked, the dogs in the first group, They very quickly learned, I can jump over this barrier and the shock's not there anymore. Okay. I'm going to do that. The group that never got shocked also learned it pretty quickly. They had never learned either way. They were just realizing they could do things. Now, this
0: third group, are they shocked now
1: that they're in the barrier place? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're shocked in the barrier, but they quickly figure out they can jump over the barrier Okay. to stop being shocked. And now the second group that was hitting the button and it wasn't doing anything, they... Just lie down and whimper. Almost all of them just lied down and whimpered there. Really? Even though they could have very easily crossed the barrier, they had been taught, you can't do anything about shocks. That's just your life now. And they just sat there. Huh. And, uh, yeah, that was that, and there were several follow-up tests to separate other things, but that essentially was the Foller test saying... This is learned helplessness. These dogs have been taught that they can't do anything, so now even when they can, they don't try because they think they can't.
0: This reminds me of a test, uh, an experiment they did with monkeys, I think, where this was less about learned helplessness and more about... Um, it was almost like the, that, you know, like the saying, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down kind of thing? Um, yeah it's a saying that kind of explains uh, a little bit of the culture, like over in Japan. Um, But they had all these chimps in a cage. And I think there was, I'm going to totally like butcher the details of this. So I'll just, I'll link to it in the show notes uh, so people can find the real actual details. (laughs) But they had like all these chimps in a cage. Right. And there's a banana at the top, um, like on this platform. So when the first one goes to get it, I think, like, they sprayed all of them with water or something. Um, Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of this. So, all of them learned that, okay, if anyone goes to the banana, there's going to be a consequence. So, they would start, like, if if one chimp would go get the banana, the others would pull it down and not let it do it. And then, I think what they did is they slowly started replacing chimps with new chimps who had never been punished, but they still learned the same thing because they'd go for the banana, they'd didn't have any uh, link with a punishment and then they get pulled down till eventually all the chimps in the cage had never been punished for going for the banana. They'd only been pulled down by their friends. And so now you have a chimp. You know, they have a cage full of chimps. None of them will go for the reward. None of them will go do the thing that looks cool because there's just this societal pressure. Yeah, none of them really know none why. None of them have ever been punished. They're just like, when I do this, people pull me down. And so I'm just not going to do it. The religion of no bananas allowed is a very serious one. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, how does this uh, like how does this happen to students and just people in real life? All right, well,
1: some good examples for students specifically is uh, we've got a lot of situations. The first being that many students will give up in a subject if they start out doing poorly or they don't understand it at first, which could be for any reason, you know, the teacher wasn't effective. That student's learning style didn't match up with the rest of the class. There could be a lot of reasons, but a lot of students will just straight up give up math, computers, or programming, foreign language, plenty of things. They'll say, Yeah, I'm not, I'm just not good at math. I'm not, I'm not good at Spanish. I just can't do it. Maybe because of several bad experiences that had taught them why even try? Yeah. You can't do it.
0: I have a couple examples of this actually
1: personal examples? Yeah.
0: Um, so one big example was my calculus class, which I took in high school. So I was a year ahead in math in high school, which is why I ended up taking calculus my senior year. And I found it very difficult and I, if I'm really honest with myself, I didn't work super hard at it. I know I did go to professors, the teachers office hours after school sometimes to get help and I would try to do my homework. But a lot of the times I would just like look at the answer in the direct in the uh the answer key, I wouldn't sit there and try very hard. And the only reason I got a good grade in that class is because the professor had a ridiculous extra credit policy. Huh. Basically, his policy was that if you said hi to him in the hall at any time other than um right before or after your math class period, you'd get like a point. So, like, people would legitimately... He was the basketball coach, too. People would legitimately go to high school basketball games just to say, Hey, Pete. And... it w- seems <laughs> not very <Yeah>. academic in <laughs> base. Students would straight up stalk the dude, including me, and get all this extra credit. And, like, I don't know. I, I think I got, like, a B-plus in the class. I probably would have pulled a C if I hadn't gotten all that extra credit. You know, and I, I understood some of it, but it was still not solid in my head. And this was part of the reason that I told myself, I'm not cut out for engineering. You know, I liked business. So I think like a a large percentage of my reason for choosing MIS and choosing the business college was that I enjoyed being in the business club in high school and stuff like that. But there was a component that was like, I'm not cut out for uh, calculus two. Like I barely got this. How am I going to get the next one? I'm not cut out for physics. People told me that, oh yeah, physics 221 has a lot of calculus in it. Good luck, bro. And I just told myself, like, nope, Tom's not cut out to be an engineer. So I think it was a little bit of learned helplessness there as well.
1: Yeah, whereas your situation may have been completely different had your teacher not had the most ridiculous extra credit thing (laughs) that I've ever heard of and am now upset that I did not have. (laughs) I had
0: another teacher with some pretty ridiculous extra credit stuff. What school did you even go to? Oh, no, no, I'm talking about one at Iowa State. Oh. I'm not going to name names, but oh. uh, he would like...
1: You know what? I never get these. I guess I just have to try
0: and do my work, I guess. I think I think you came out ahead in terms of actually learning. Yeah, there was one teacher who was like, yeah, if you uh, take this Cabbage Patch doll and go like photograph it in cool locations, you can get
1: some. <laughs> so like the traveling <laughs> gnome, but with a Cabbage Patch kid. Yes. Why? So I think he had good
0: intentions because one of the... One of the projects was like a person took the Cabbage Patch doll to the Intel chip manufacturing uh, facility somewhere. I don't know where it is. They actually like toured the place and kind of got some real world experience that way. But uh, I think a lot of them were just kind of gamed. And uh, he he had another opportunity where it was like, if you design a logo for, you know, this website, you can get some extra credit. And people would just straight up steal logos from the internet and from Google. And he wouldn't be able to catch it. So,
1: oh, I don't Feel know, like cheating, I know who you're man. talking about, but <laughs> yeah,
0: it was pretty ridiculous. I mean, I'm not gonna lie; I definitely took advantage of as much extra credit as I could naturally. So yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, I you mean, utilize you're the going resources to, you there. have, even if it's stu- even if you're but stupid. But it doesn't right?
1: mean that it helped you as much as actually, yeah, learning some things might have helped though.
0: So you mentioned um, you could have a bad experience, whether it be due to you know a bad professor or you just didn't work hard or something and you attributed it to the difficulty of the class rather than a lack of effort. Um, another potential uh, reason could be that you were, you lacked a prerequisite like bit of knowledge. Oh, what yeah. I found is with some subjects, you might be at the point where you could learn it, but you're missing just enough that it would be a real stretch for you to learn it. And that's, and Because of that, you aren't able to motivate yourself or you just choose not to motivate yourself to really work hard at it, and then you fail. I think that might have been the problem with calculus. Like, maybe I didn't pay enough attention in trig or uh, Algebra 2 or something, and I just, like, didn't quite have all the foundational knowledge that I needed for calculus to really click. Um, so I would have had to work much harder than I really did. This also happened with programming. The first time I took programming, um, it was a weird situation where... The computer science students take ComSci 227, which has no prereq. And the business students have to take a similar Java programming class called ComSci 207, but it did have a prereq, which made no sense to me. And I was like, well, I want to take programming. That sounds cool. So I'm going to take the harder computer science programming class because it does, it will will, uh, will replace replace the easier one, which also made no sense.
1: But you skip the prereq.
0: Yeah, so I took it, In the prereq was a dumb class. The prereq was like a Microsoft Word class. That is... It made no sense. I yeah, guess that doesn't make any some, sense
1: because being good at Microsoft Word is not going to make you a good programmer. That's not My only
0: thought is like some, you know, some administrator at the business college is like, well, this class is about computers. So I guess we'll make this one the first one I have to do, and then they'll move on to the programming one. This sounds nice and neat and tidy, hmm. but I wanted to program and I didn't want to learn how to PowerPoint Uh, so I took the computer science one and it was freaking hard Uh, way harder cuz I actually dropped out of it and then the next semester I took the easier one ComSci 207 the computer science class was much harder and and the professor was great but they just expected a lot more and once again I just didn't have that foundational knowledge and I would have had to work way harder than I was willing to work so I dropped out of that class and I was like, man, am I not cut out for real actual programming? I know HTML and CSS, but when it comes to, you know, for loops and while loops and classes and object oriented stuff like I don't get it, man. So just
1: because you probably started at like level two instead of level one. So you didn't yeah. get the so, proper initiation. Right. So, I mean, maybe jumping forward and starting at
0: the at a place where you're not ready can be something that causes learned helplessness.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Because your, your progression has not... You haven't laid out uh, a good path of progression.
1: Yeah. Now, there are some other examples I have here that students can probably relate to. Um, one is that, let's say, a student has a bunch of group projects their first couple years, and maybe in two or three of these groups, they've got somebody who's just taking the wheel. Super type A, I'm going to handle this project. And then Mm -hmm. when this person, not the type A person, but the original person tries to give something to the group, tries to do something, their work maybe isn't the best or it wasn't researched. And then their work isn't used in the final presentation or they're told that everybody else can handle it. That could very easily teach somebody in a group setting your efforts are not really wanted. They're not as good as other students, so don't bother. So now I've given a possible reason for why people would not do as much in groups in later years and also, unfortunately, a possible excuse that you can use a couple of times before people catch on. Mm -hmm. But somebody could be very easily taught, your efforts just aren't as good as other students. Let the leader do it. They'll make a better presentation. They'll handle it. Just
0: Just let me take care of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you're not good enough to do this, so just don't try. Even if you're an expert in the topic, maybe. Maybe later on it's a class you're better at. But you're just convinced. In a group, I can't. I can't give anything nobody else can. Did your mom do laundry for you when you were a kid? Um. I, certain years, honestly, I don't remember very well. At some point, that stopped. So I remember this very well. When I was growing
0: up, um, my brother and I had chores we had to do. We had the chore book. We'd have to come home every single day after school, look through the chore book, and like go to the right day and do everything listed there. But Laundry was never there and dishes were never there. My mom always did laundry for everyone and she always did the dishes. And she would often complain about us like leaving dirty dishes out, not rinsing them. Uh, cause she would be like, she'd scrub them with soap and everything, but she would want us to rinse the stuff off or throw away chicken bones or whatever. And then she'd often complain about us like not bringing our dirty clothes down on the right day or something. And my dad, being the very solution driven person that he is, um, was just like, We'll make the kids do their own laundry, duh. And every time she'd say, no, it's too much of a pain in the butt for me to teach them. I'd rather just do it myself.
1: And now Tom doesn't know how to do his laundry.
0: <laughs> I, I do my own laundry. Thank you very much. Got <laughs> clothes in the dryer right now, man. Only Jeez. because your mom didn't come to the dorm. Only because the dorms made you learn it, probably. <laughs> I did have to learn it in the dorm. Yeah, I always thought it was kind of funny that some of our friends would... Literally just let their clothes pile up all semester and then take them home for Thanksgiving break and have their mom wash them. Like that's the ultimate laziness. I figured out how to do my laundry, but I do remember just having like a little bit of like, oh no, I don't know how to do laundry, you know? <laughs> and well, I, I obviously this. I called my mom because I needed clean clothes. I'm not going to be the weird guy who just plays video games and never washes his clothes. But, um, there was like, I remember there was like a little bit of initial hesitation You know, I've always had this thing in my brain of like, I'm going to solve a problem, but I can also readily pick out the, the tasks or pursuits in which I have a little bit of learned helplessness that I have to overcome. Uh, I wrote Zelda in the notes because I I wanted to mention this to you. I'm playing Wind Waker right now and you've been watching me and I, I know that you've played the game like seven times. Oh yes. So because I'm an entrepreneur and because I'm working all the time, sometimes I'm like, I just want to get through this story and enjoy the game as if it were like a roller coaster ride or like a theme park ride. And like with a, you know, first person shooter or something, you can easily do that. The task is very simple. Shoot the bad guys. Uh, Zelda's very puzzle driven though. So I remember, uh, I got into the first, not the first dungeon, One I think it was the second dungeon the one with the dragon. Yeah. And there's like this locked door and there was nothing in the room. There's like no chest for keys or anything. And my initial thought was, I don't know how to open this door. I'm just going to ask Martin. He's played this game seven times. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Bro, how, how do I open door. this stupid door? You know, and I'm like running around. I'm like, oh, I don't want to ask Martin because I'm going to set a precedent of asking Martin how to solve every stupid puzzle. And I'm not even going to like the game. And then like two seconds later, I realized, oh, look, there's a There's a barrel of sticks, and there are enemies, so it's a little bit of misdirection because you think the sticks are for hitting the enemies. But no, the sticks are for walking up to a torch and setting the stick on fire, and then that's how you open the door. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, okay, this game is going to test me with things that are not obvious in the puzzles. And I can either ask Martin and completely spoil my experience and also probably annoy him, or I can tell myself that, no, I need to figure this out. And I'm going to.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you just ask me several times, you would easily learn helplessness with video games. Yeah, exactly. And then every Zelda that you ever try to play is just going to be terrible for you.
0: And there was this article you linked to called Unlearning Learned Helplessness. Yeah. Um there's this the teacher who was like what is it? A geometry teacher,
1: you know? I don't In Philly? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, a geometry teacher.
0: That's right, yeah. And so he kind of did a little uh, experiment with this where he gave students um, like a piece of paper with unmarked triangles on it. And he asked them, figure out which of these triangles are congruent. He had tracing paper they could use. And he didn't, didn't tell them how to do it. And like a lot of the students were immediately like, we don't know how to do this. Like knee jerk, you know, just automatic reaction. I can't do this. And because he didn't tell them the answer, after a while, they started looking at it there was no other option, and they figured it out. Same with my torch problem.
1: Yeah, they wanted to ask for help initially, but then he just kept saying, "No, you're gonna you're gonna have to figure out this problem yourself to prove to yourself that you can figure out problems." Yeah, without my help, you don't need you don't need hand holding this entire time.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is a an es- essential skill to learn for the job world because, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the top skills that employers want from a new grad is somebody who can be autonomous and take the initiative to solve problems without asking for help all the time. In fact, I actually, the only job I ever got fired from, that's a large reason why I got
1: fired. Really?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like I may have told this story in another podcast. I can't remember, but the gist of it was I got hired at this, uh, this agency, an insurance agency, basically. So they weren't like the insurance company. They were like the agency that found clients. And they're like a middleman basically. Okay. And all my jobs up until that point in high school had been like working at target in the food court or working at like the grocery store, second groceries or trudging through a cornfield. This was the first job I had that actually required some thinking because I was doing bookkeeping. I was reconciling bank statements, all that kind of stuff. And I was so afraid of screwing up things that I would constantly ask the owner of the company, like, Hey, am I doing this right? You know, to the point where I was basically wasting her time and uh, not doing the thing that she hired me for, which was to save her time.
1: Yeah, so you're actually making the boss more busy. Mm-hmm.
0: And this goes back to a lesson from what I think is the longest episode of the College of Oogie podcast ever, which is called How Long Should It Take to Get Good at My Job? Um, this is the one where I interviewed a guy named Matt Ringle. He's a systems architect at this company called Akamai technologies in Boston. And he wrote this blog post a while ago called the 15 minute rule, where at his company, there's a policy, which basically says, if you are stuck on something and you don't know how to solve it before you ask for help, you have to set a timer for 15 minutes and you have to spend 15 minutes uh, working on the problem for that much more time and also documenting every aspect of the problem. And then once the 15 minutes is up, if you haven't solved it at that point, You got to take your documentation and then go ask someone for help. So it's 15 minutes. That's a short enough amount of time where you're not just totally spinning your wheels and wasting the company's time on something you can't solve. But it's just enough time that you're likely to solve the problem on your own and you avoid that knee jerk. I don't know what to
1: do. Please help mentality. That's a really good idea. Yeah, especially because uh, eventually with that, you would probably gain the ability to gauge how long is it going to take me to figure this out and mm-hmm. then later maybe you won't even need to go to somebody you'll be like actually i could probably get this in another 15 minutes yeah done because you've learned your own skill level at what you're doing
0: yeah exactly so i mean i guess if you knew you haven't solved it entirely in 15 minutes but you're like okay i'm on the path i'm yeah you know i'm not just completely lost still uh but also documenting the problem changes your mental context from person trying to solve a problem to person trying to explain a problem to somebody else and that lets you look at it from a different angle activates different you know neural pathways in your brain and it might actually lead you to the solution um, i'm sure you're used to this i know definitely i had this thing where i get stuck on a programming problem at work and i would ask somebody for help and the moment they came over i'm like now i'm like looking at it in the context
1: of trying to point out what i don't get to that person and i go oh Oh, I get it. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, that's that has happened so often. Just let me explain the problem to you, and then halfway through a sentence, never mind. I, I'm uh, I figured it out. It turns out it was easy. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think about it from a larger point of view.
0: Yeah. So moving on to our next section here, um, you wanted to talk about how learned helplessness can make things worse for you overall, right?
1: Yeah, how learned helplessness can affect you, in addition to the very obvious student issues, mm-hmm. but. Students experience all these regular life issues, too. So just to expand a little bit on what learned helplessness can do and what uh, Martin Seligman talked about in the book. So essentially, according to Martin Seligman, learned helplessness combined with a pessimistic explanatory style, and I'll, ex- I'll explain what that is in a bit, uh, combined, that's a very effective way to end up depressed. Not Not necessarily like, a depressive disorder like unipolar or bipolar or manic depression but the sort of everyday depression that i think most of us in this generation have probably had at least once where we just feel really down about everything and aren't motivated for months at a time mm. but it will go away on its own eventually yeah you know that that kind in fact um he had said that in more than 90% of cases depression is episodic like that it comes and goes between 3 and 12 months really and And that normal depression, which is what he's calling this sort of everyday we get it, whether or not it's a depressive disorder, we just have it sometimes now, is extremely common. He calls it the common cold of mental illness. And he has some societal predictions as to why that may be, too. So I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. But I, I have some theories. Yeah. The short version of his explanation for why that's so common now is that society has become, at least here, at least in America, Western mm-hmm. society has become really obsessed with the self yeah. and self-esteem. But we've also lost a lot of our connection to communities, uh, religious percentages down. Our ability to be feel super nationalistic has gone down because of things like, he gave examples like during and after the Vietnam War, many people felt disenchanted with the idea of nationalism. So everybody was all, like, focusing only on themselves and not for the, the greater good. But the problem is that, especially with one of his examples being the drop in religion, so a lot of these people, uh, they feel alone. They're trying to only worry about their self-esteem without building up the skills to get there because he was also talking about how we obsess over self-esteem now and not the things that bring it to you. Mm-hmm. So these people are trying to gain self-esteem and a sense of purpose but they don't believe or care necessarily as much about their families their communities uh, some sort of religion or their nation so they are they feel kind of purposeless yeah and it just leads us to have a higher degree of pessimism because yeah. they had noted that with a lot of the people who had survived through older generations this wasn't nearly as big of a problem
0: see that's that's what i'm curious about and i mean maybe there's like a lack of data to, to even go back and look at from those generations but I would love to know about the prevalence of these types of mental illnesses in earlier generations who lived in different ways
1: well there is one thing it's maybe not exactly what you're looking for but if you read through this book they found a way to analyze the explanatory style which I'll I'll get into in a minute still Mm -hmm. they found a way to look at and analyze an explanatory style just from verbatim quotes so they were able to look at people's diaries they would get um, some of the elderly generation who had diaries from when they were teenagers, right? Compare how their pessimism or optimism was then and now. Ask them how things were. They did a lot of comparisons to try to really narrow this down. Yeah, but so that's actually worth looking into if you're interested. But
0: well, that was the the society bit is interesting to me. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Art of Loving, by yeah. Eric Fromm, and I don't agree with everything in this book so far. I'm almost done with it, but the foundation of it is actually very compelling and I think I might do a, like a five lessons video on it. Um, but he was talking about how modern capitalism sort of concentrates wealth into, you know, smaller and smaller pockets of people. And so the rest of us kind of have to fit into these giant organizations that just keep getting bigger. And, uh, I kind of want to just like read a little bit here. Yeah. So it said like modern capitalism needs men who cooperate smoothly in large numbers, who want to consume more and more, and whose tastes are standardized and can be easily influenced and anticipated. It needs men who are free or who feel free and independent, not subject to any authority or principle or conscience, yet willing to be commanded, to do what is expected of them, to fit into the social machine without friction, who can be guided without force, led without leaders, prompted without aim, except the one to make good, to be on the move, to function, and to go ahead. So uh, what is the outcome? Modern man is alienated from himself, from his fellow men, and from nature. He's been transformed into a commodity, experiences life forces as an investment, which must bring him the maximum profit obtainable under existing market conditions. Human relations are essentially those of alienated automatons, each basing his security on staying close to the herd and not being different in thought, feeling, or action. So I don't know, it's kind of interesting. He just like talks it's very about bleak. how bleak. It's really bleak. Um, I don't think he's like he's not paying too bleak of a picture because I think the whole book is about how you can deliberately stop feeling this way and start doing things oh, well, that do that's, connect you better good. It's with not people. a book
1: where you just feel horrible at the end.
0: Right. It's not, you know, it's not Brave New World, although he does actually make a allusion to Brave New World and kind of describe it like it, some of, some of actual society is like what is described in Brave New World. Um, but I do think that is one of the problems here is we do have less connection to community, less, focus on your own internal integrity, um, more of just a focus on consumption. And we have like all these people putting only their positive aspects of life out into public where we can see them. And we still yeah. deal with all our negative stuff and all these expectations. So it makes total sense that we deal with this depression uh, and that it's very common. I don't oh, even yeah. I get it, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that's incredibly relatable. Uh, another thing that I just remembered is in the book, uh, Martin Seligman pointed out that over the course of his having children, he's noticed that, like back, back a while, several mm-hmm. decades, one of the biggest, like, main children books, children's books, was um, the little engine that could. You know, a story about perseverance. Oh yeah. But then, in more recent years, he said, at least at the time of the book, he had noticed that a lot of the more popular ones were simply about feeling good about yourself and having self-esteem. Oh, yeah. Without building up, you know, the little engine that could tells Mm -hmm. you try hard. You're probably going to get self-esteem if you keep at it and work on stuff and have something to feel good about. But then these other ones, he basically said that self-esteem is like a meter that reads how well your system is working. It's not the end goal. Okay. So
0: basically, like, because of what we're told as kids, our self-esteem is sort of built on a false foundation now. Yeah, or at, least, built on or at like least it can be. These very thin quickly. little clouds of things people have said to us as children, but they like easily don't support the weight of actual reality. Yeah. And yeah, that, that reminds me. Um, I remember reading somewhere that you're not supposed to tell kids they're smart. You're supposed to tell them that they're hard workers. Like if someone does something really good, you are gonna be like, oh, Timmy, you're such a smart kid for doing that. It's like, oh, Timmy, you worked really hard on that. I'm proud of you. That's what you should say. You want to praise... Effort. You don't want to praise uh, talent because innate talent is just going to be there, but effort's what's going to keep people progressing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the person who's a little less talented, but works really hard and believes in themselves, is likely to get farther than the person who just said, "Yeah, I'm talented." Mm-hmm. Awesome. I think they're and then stops.
0: They're also going to be likely number one to not have as much of this learned helplessness because it's been reinforced that their effort is what brings the results. So if I'm if I'm confused or I'm not getting somewhere, I should just work harder. And I think it also reinforces their ability to deal with bad things that happen. Yeah. Cause I think, I really think one of the big problems that we deal with today is everyone's been taught that they're special and that everything's going to go right for them and that they're basically the protagonist in this awesome story. And then the world hits them in the face, like a ton of bricks when, you know, they get too old for, for, to be in their parents' house or to be in a high school where there's, like, teachers and all, all this kind of stuff. And I don't think a lot of people are prepared for that because they haven't been taught that effort is what gets you places.
1: Yeah. Does that makes so, sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Mm. So let's talk about the
0: explanatory styles. Because you talked yes. about, like, pessimistic and optimistic. So, I mean, what does that mean?
1: So... This is one of the big things in this book because after he discovered learned helplessness with the help of other people, I don't remember the names of, mm-hmm. he had wanted to figure out, okay, what do we do about it? Can we train somebody not to be learned, learned uh, helpless? Can we prevent people from becoming that way? And the answer to both of those questions through tests was yes, even with the animals. So those helpless oh. dogs earlier, if they would go over there and physically, like kind of pick up the dog and help it move its legs and show it, jump over the thing. This will work. Do that a few times and then then suddenly the dog says, wait, my efforts do work now. Hmm. Awesome. And then it learns it. And if they had taught something that they could affect an outcome earlier on, so like group one who could hit the button and turn off the shock and then later they would reverse the situation, put them in a test where they were helpless and then put them in a new test where they could do it again, that same animal would remember It's not helpless, even though it was at one point.
0: Okay, so if there's a foundation of effort and a foundation of
1: the solution works. Yeah, they like immunized the animals against learned helplessness later on.
0: Okay, so basically, regardless of whether or not you felt helpless in the past or not, learning to change change your circumstances will create a mindset that, that will help you in future events.
1: Yeah, so the explanatory style specifically is the things that we say to ourselves about what we're experiencing. So usually the negative beliefs, he says, that follow adversity are inaccurate, first of all. Most people will pick the... Out of the potential causes they are there are, they will pick the one that's the most dire, the most dramatic, mm. and assume that's true. People, after a negative thing, aren't that good at analyzing the information. And also... The emotions and actions do not usually follow adversity directly. They come from what we think afterward. And if you change what you think, which is your explanatory style, how you explain the situation to yourself, okay, then your emotions you feel after something bad or good will be different.
0: So, like, what's a good example?
1: A good example might be, let's say, we'll go back to school. I mm-hmm. fail an exam. Okay. Let's say I failed a philosophy exam because that happened once. So if I wanted to have a negative explanatory style for that, I could say uh, I'm not I'm just not good at philosophy or I'm bad at exams. I'm not a good student. Why am I even trying in this class? Mm. I should just accept that I'm not going to do well in this one. So the characteristics of an explanatory style are pervasiveness, which is how, what's the scope that you think this bad situation affects? So if I say Mm. after failing that exam, I'm not a good student, the scope is student, not just that philosophy class. I've allowed that badness to pervade through to my entire student life. Okay. There's also permanence. So if I say, I'm just not good at this, I'm not saying something like, I just didn't study enough. I've made it permanent. It's a personality trait. I'm not good at this. Mm. That's forever. And the other one is personalization, which is essentially whether or not you are more likely to blame yourself or an external factor. So a negative one in this situation was warranted because I didn't study. That was my bad. But I could have blamed it on external things and said, well, the teacher's just really mean to me or classes are dumb. It's not my fault. So, those three factors, pervasiveness, permanence, and personalization, are what describe your explanatory style. Okay. And Now, do these apply to positive events
0: as well? Yes. They
1: definitely apply to positive events as well.
0: So, if you did... So, let me see here if I'm following this correctly. The more... I don't know if I want to say right, but the more helpful way to Just do maybe more, would, optimistic would yeah, more, more optimistic yeah the more optimistic style scale. would be if something good happens then you would have like a high permanence a high pervasiveness uh feeling towards it and if something bad happens you'd want to have lower so if like you fail a test you'd want to say okay i didn't study well for this test uh, maybe i was like having a bad day today but then it, if you did well in the test is it more optimistic to say
1: oh i studied really hard for that or is it to say like I'm just good at this. It would be more optimistic, according to this scale, to say, yeah, I'm a good student. I know what I'm doing. So being being a cocky... (laughs) A a a little bit, a little bit. (laughs) Well, he doesn't even advise being optimistic blindly all the time. Okay. In the book, they go over the fact that pessimism is more realistic. So in scenarios where the cost of, like, the people who are pessimistic are less likely to discount something. So let's say you're an airplane pilot and and there's a problem don't be optimistic do the analytically correct thing to do to save the plane don't just go we're probably fine <laughs> you know in that situation you don't want to just ignore facts to be optimistic but if it's a low low cost of failure say one one exam that's not that important mm-hmm. like or really exams in general because the cost isn't death it's not that high you could retake it or take the class again in that case optimism works better and The more optimistic explanatory style for negative events is to isolate them. It was one instance. Mm -hmm. uh, Maybe externalize it, but he also says that it's not advisable to just externalize everything because then you don't take responsibility.
0: Yeah, then you're just kind of diluting yourself.
1: Yeah, but it's really helpful to isolate it and reduce the scope. I'm not a bad student. I failed one philosophy exam, Mm. specifically philosophy, one exam, that's a very isolated incident. I can do differently in every other situation.
0: So this is probably one of the best ways to deal with failing an exam is to yeah. kind of rein in the scope of it's one exam. It's not everything. And the reason I failed it is because of circumstances in the last you know few days, maybe I didn't study right or I wasn't ready for this reason. Not that I'm a bad student. I'm not cut out for this. I should go just work at a meat shop or something.
1: Yeah, as let's say, it's finals week and you fail the first one. Well, the rest probably aren't going to go well if you've convinced yourself, well, what's the point? I might as well not even go to them.
0: Yeah, though, got to say, Vinny at the meat shop is very interested in having some help, so. Yeah? Just saying. Definitely.
1: <laughs> so, uh, a few more things about this. The There's a test in here in the book and i found a copy of it online so mm-hmm. as long as that still exists that might be helpful to readers
0: yeah i'm looking at it i'll have it linked up in the show notes. and uh, and i
1: took it too so what i thought was what i thought was interesting about my results because this gives you a lot of different numbers to look at okay is that when thinking about pessimistic events i scored marvelously optimistic like super high optimistic when it comes to pes- when it comes to bad events but when it comes to good events it said greatly pessimistic <laughs> so Basically, so is that the total
0: good score and total bad scores here or yes. So a total bad score mean how you think about bad events?
1: Yes, but I don't remember how the scale works. I just wrote down what the book told me. Okay. So we, we can look into that and explain the scale a little better later. But essentially for mine, I learned that I'm really good at isolating bad things and being hopeful but whenever I do something good, I'm humble to a fault and won't accept credit for it okay. or won't say that I'm good as I am. Uh, yeah, I, I don't speak Spanish like I've been saying for the last <laughs> two years as I speak Spanish. So I just thought I that I was saw, interesting. I, th-
0: I told you you were straight up fluent like three yeah. years ago.
1: Yeah. And I kept just saying, no, I'm not. I'm just not good. I'm isolating it too much. I'm not letting it be a permanent part of me. I'm saying, yeah, I had that one conversation. Yeah. So I thought that was weird. So that test. Is actually pretty enlightening. Okay. Because it gives you more than just, you're an optimist or you're a pessimist. I'm average because I was so ridiculously extreme on both ends.
0: Interesting. You know what? I think, it like, canceled out. I think I'm pretty. Okay, here's what it says for me. I don't know if you have the same numbers as me because I did the online one and I think you did the book one. Right? I
1: think it's the same exact test, but I don't know. I read several chapters after that explaining my score. Okay. So I don't know what it gives you on the Well, it,
0: so it gave me a bunch of numbers. It gave me a. Good and bad score for both for permanence, yeah, for pervasiveness and for personalization. It gave me a stuff of hope score. I don't know what that means. Yes, and then I have my total bad score, total good score, and my good minus bad score. Does so, it explain
1: any of those? Does it tell you what's going on?
0: Um, let's see here. I want to look at the test real quick. I don't think it does. It mm, uh, might be helpful says, to like. It says the following analysis uses the rules spelled out in learned optimism. So. Oh, you know what I think it said at the top. It was like, "Don't read the book until you take this test." Oh, yes, in the book. So it actually basically, said you that need to, like too. look in the book if you want to uh, really dig into the analysis. Okay, but mine says my total bad score is average, it's a ten.
1: Okay, so it gives you it gives you that. At least. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and my total good score is thinking is quite pessimistic, oh. so I think I might be in your camp, yes, where. Very- A little similar. I'm not super optimistic about about good things that happen. Says uh, for permanence on my bad score, I'm super optimistic. So I'm I'm definitely not the kind of person anymore who says, oh, I'm just not cut out for this. And I think I've had to learn that through all those experiences with math and programming and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Average with my good score there. With pervasiveness, looks like I'm moderately optimistic on the bad side, average on the good side. Says I'm moderately hopeful for stuff of hope. Don't know what that is. And then personalization, uh, have very low self-esteem on the bad one. And then for the good one, it says very pessimistic. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so uh, can you explain, what was the per- personalization aspect of it again?
1: It's whether you tend to attribute your successes or failures to you or okay. your environment. So if I pass a test and I say, yeah, that teacher, he just made this exam easy. I am That's a pessimistic way of looking at it because I'm okay. not taking any credit for it.
0: Gotcha. Okay, now I like want to go look back at these questions, and I don't know. See if I if I retake the quiz now, I'll know and I'll give different. Oh yeah, you but can't.
1: In the book, it said very specifically, don't read the analysis after this. Yeah. Until you've taken the quiz.
0: Well, like one of these questions is like you fall down a great deal while skiing, and I mean I literally took this test after going skiing because I've been in Colorado, and uh, like the two answers are skiing is difficult or the trails are icy, and I'm like, well, I would know if the trails are icy. But then I just decided that I would only fall if the trails were icy. <laughs> so hmm. I don't know. Some of these questions are kind of weird.
1: Well, there are enough questions and they're laid out in a way yeah. where it should be pretty hard to fake it or accidentally do stuff. Oh, okay. unless you've thoroughly, thoroughly analyzed. So here's what
0: here's one is. of them where I can kind of see one of the cho- one of the questions is you tell a joke and everyone laughs and the answers are the joke was funny or my timing was perfect. And I remember I put the joke funny.
1: Oh, yes. You blamed the joke, not your hilarious comedic timing. Yeah. So that's a pretty pessimistic way to look at jokes.
0: I guess the way I looked at it was like, okay, my timing could be really good there, but the joke still has to be funny. So I guess I attributed it to the, you know, the foundational nature of the joke itself. Not, I mean, I guess the timing would be part of it. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how like totally accurate this is, but.
1: Well, there were further tests that were devised later on, okay, but also this has a large amount of situations, so it's unlikely that you would be able to so directly personalize yeah, all of them. that makes sense,
0: but yeah, I would say like a few of them might just you know reflect your
1: life, you know, and then you're going to have a different thought about it, yeah, but so
0: anyway. it gave me moderately pessimistic for my overall score. What was yours?
1: My overall score? Yeah. Was or like just, it really
0: gives me a good minus bad.
1: It was average. Completely average totally because average. I was so extreme on both ends that it just put me in the middle.
0: Oh, okay. Did they give you numbers for yours or was it just... Oh, I
1: have all the numbers, yeah.
0: Because my, my bad is 10 and my good is 12.
1: See, my, so I'm guessing you're My bad like is both 6 12? and my good is 9.
0: Oh. Oh, is 3 average then? Yeah. Gotcha. I don't know how the scales work here. Yeah. say?
1: Okay. So, yeah, those tests try to give an example of your explanatory style, Mm -hmm. and they found through tons of tests and data, I had to read several chapters on sports statistics, and that wasn't (laughs) very fun. But they found that athletes, teams, politicians, and even people with long-term illnesses and other health issues Mm -hmm. with optimistic explanatory styles did better. Okay. In general, in their specific struggles. Politicians, they were able to predict very accurately who would win even nominations and Senate races. Really? Yeah, it's really interesting. And optimism they've shown boosts immune system functioning. Hmm. So they had somebody where they took rats. It was rats or mice. Pretty sure it was rats, though. They took rats, and sadly enough, They injected all of them with a certain amount of, I think they said it was a sarcoma, I don't really know, some sort of cancer-type cell. And it was a specific amount where, under normal conditions, 50% of the rats would die, and 50% of the rats, their immune system would kick out the cells and move on. So they took three groups. One of them was control. 50% died, 50% didn't, just as expected. But the learned helplessness ones died massively more, and the not learned helplessness ones, they were much better. Their immune systems were stronger. Better than fifty-fifty. Yeah. They had wow. better immune system functionality. They measured the cells, the immune system specific cells that come out to fight these kind of things and they had larger amounts. They were doing better and the pessimistic rats just died in massive amounts.
0: So if I go to the doctor... What he should prescribe me is a healthy dose of cheer up. Yeah, mate, everything's just gonna be fine. Put on a smile.
1: <laughs> well, probably not necessarily that. But if you're optimistic, you're gonna do better in general, probably, mm. okay. along with whatever the medically recommended advice is. Right. Don't just say I'm gonna cure cancer by being happy by itself, because if it's really serious, I'm not. I don't. I don't know if you should just say that.
0: So, like you and I often say, a healthy amount of narcissism is a good thing. Also, a healthy amount. Underlying unhealthy of optimism
1: is also a good thing. So say for my arm thing, being optimistic is likely to give me just better results than wallowing Mm. in my misery.
0: You know, I got a story about that when it comes to injuries. Yeah. Um, One of my dad's friends, my dad and his friends have always been into heavy lifting. And uh, I want to say this friend was like trying to squat 800 pounds. And he literally ripped his quad muscle. Like 90 of me. Yeah, I know, right? He like literally, I think one of his legs, he literally like ripped the quad muscle basically clean in half or something like that. Um, You know, went to the doctor. They had to get surgery or whatever. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but the doctor essentially told him, you won't walk again. That's happy. And he was like, screw that. He was very deliberate about rehabilitation exercises and everything, and Totally healed it. Um, well, there you go. If he had and just said... Still squats. I don't think he squats 800 pounds anymore, but...
1: If he just said, you're right, and then accepted that. In fact, the doctor could have instilled helplessness directly into this person. Yeah. And they chose not to accept it.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder if there's something to be said. It's incredible. I wonder if there's something to be said, though, for um, a mindset of just like, rebelling against a bad diagnosis
1: well i mean i've read a lot of anecdotal cases Mm -hmm. but i don't know if there's anything crazy studied but in general it seems like people who are optimistic have a better chance of pulling through stuff and even if they don't and they've got a terminal illness you know that sucks even if you're going to die in a year would you rather spend this year optimistically yeah or pessimistically so you know what either way Being able to adapt an optimistic explanatory style is likely to increase the quality of your life, if not the length.
0: Yeah. Um, The host of Vsauce3 on YouTube, he actually, I don't know if he still has it, he got cancer. He might still have it. But like the thing that really stuck with me was just like how ridiculously optimistic about it he was and still is. He's got a video on there um, that I can link to. But yeah, like that's, I don't know, I think that's the way to be. So the obvious question for anybody who's like feeling depressed right now or who just fails a test or is having difficulties, how do I become an optimistic person?
1: How do you become an optimistic person? How do I overcome learned helplessness? Well, luckily, I mean, can just tell them, luckily this is answered pretty well with some good examples. And it's not just he didn't just come up with the ideas. These are tested. Okay. These are tested concepts that they've used with real people that permanently changed their explanatory style and and increased the value of their life. So I don't know if we'll have time to go through the whole thing, but the gist is that you've got your, it's A, B, C, your adversity, your belief, and your consequence. Adversity, Mm -hmm. something bad or good happens. Mostly bad in this situation since that leads to pessimism more often. So something bad happens, I fail a test. Belief, I'm a bad student. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Consequence, I feel pretty sad now because I've completely blamed myself and there's no hope. Now, the tactic here is to change that belief section mm. so that you don't explain it so negatively, so permanently, per- pervasively, and personalized. Okay. So the two best ways to change the beliefs are to learn to, A, distract yourself from it long enough that it's not an issue, So they were saying that another problem with uh, the people with pessimistic explanatory styles that makes this just so much worse is if they ruminate a lot, which they were using to mean... Like eat grass? Yeah, they were using that same (laughs) verb to mean people who will obsess over the problem. Okay. So today I feel depressed, so I'm going to spend the next four hours analyzing myself, trying to figure out why I'm depressed. That would be a good example. I feel depressed, oh, so I'm gonna spend rumination. the next four hours out on my hands and knees eating the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know what? That's weird, but you can do it. But their their point was people with pessimistic explanatory styles, if they let themselves just obsess and keep analyzing and circling the same thoughts, mm-hmm. it's it's not gonna go well. It's gonna go pretty badly. So distracting yourself sometimes is a good way to get rid of it because and a really good way to do this. They said, so you feel bad. The reason that you feel bad is because you want to solve this problem. You're obsessing over it. You're obsessing over the problem because you want to figure it out. You hmm. want to think about it. You want to figure out why Why am I sad? What can I do? But they're saying, rather than obsess about it right now and let yourself spiral down, write it down somewhere, write down what you're feeling and say, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to think about this later. At 6.30, I will think oh, about okay. this. That makes it easier for you to stop obsessing about it because now you can let it go. The reason it was circling your head is because you're obsessing with solving it. Yeah. And now you can say, it's okay, I won't forget it. I wrote it down. So I can go think about something else. I can go play some some sort of sport. I can go go for a walk, think about something different and then when you do come back to it later you're probably going to have a clearer head so you'll be able to analyze a little better. Because right when it
0: happens the emotions are all flared
1: up and you can't really think clearly. Yeah, and we're really bad at telling ourselves that what we're saying to ourselves is inaccurate. So if Mm -hmm. I tell you, Tom, everything you do is terrible. Why do you even try? What (laughs) are you doing with your website? You're likely to say, yeah, that's not true, so I'm not going to let it hurt me. But if you say it to yourself, you're much more likely to say, well, Tom knows what he's talking about. He's me, even if it's just as inaccurate. Okay. And when you're feeling bad, it's probably going to be just as inaccurate as if I did it. Yeah. Like, your negative thinking self isn't necessarily giving you all the right answers. It feels bad. right? And you're just, people are bad at telling themselves that they're wrong because internal conflicts are weird like that. Okay. So, distracting yourself and, and solving it later, that's one thing, but it's not as effective as the second, which is disputing it because it doesn't permanently solve those beliefs you had. It doesn't permanently say, I'm, a, I'm not a bad student. It just says, I'll stop feeling bad for now. Mm. So if you dispute those beliefs, I think I'm a bad student because I failed this exam. I dispute the belief by gathering evidence of all sorts. Why is that not true? Well, eh, the person next to me failed too. Maybe it was a hard test. That's one. I do very well in these other classes. And I didn't study in this one. Those are pretty good explanations mm. that explain this situation it's also one exam out of several i can probably still pass this class so all is not lost there's no use in there's no use right now in freaking out about it so learning how to dispute those thoughts now next time i fail a test which hopefully you know hopefully that's not very often mm-hmm. but next time i'm less likely because i've previously disputed those arguments i'm less likely to say yeah i'm a bad student because i've already said no we already solved that you're not a bad student we explained it yeah This is how it works. And the more you do that, the more used to it you are, the more used to disputing your own negative thoughts you are, and you can get really good at it. Right? One tactic they had for this, which I thought was really interesting, they had one where you log your situations and write them down, but I didn't do that. I like things that are more active personally. Mm -hmm. So they had an example where you take a friend or a relative or even a teacher or something. Let's say you and I did it. I would give you, here are some situations that make me feel bad, Tom, and here's what I think to myself. I want you to tell these things to me, and I'm going to argue with you and tell you why you're wrong. Because, oh, okay. it's because, like I said earlier, it's easier for me to dispute your thoughts, Tom, than it is for me to dispute mine. Well, Martin, I certainly know you're a bad rapper. Yeah, yeah, lyrical, miracle, spiritual, <laughs> you, you know, that's not true probably not the best rapper, but it's pretty dope. You can't even you can't even be lying. <laughs> so, I thought that was a really interesting tactic bringing someone else in. You're externalizing these internal voices since it's easier for us to dispute external voices.
0: Yeah. So this uh, something occurred to me while you've been talking about this and that is sort of close to what I was thinking here. So these are really good things to internalize and to use on yourself. But I would imagine Every single person listening to this podcast right now has had or will have a time where a friend of yours or a girlfriend or boyfriend or somebody is dealing with these problems and you need to support them. And I think that these tactics are probably really good to use on other people as well. Help distract them from what they're dealing with by saying, all right, let's go you know, take a breather, or take a walk before we deal with it, and then dispute it by bringing up examples from their own life. Yeah, n- you know? now that
1: that distract one is a big deal too. Because let's say, let's say you're having a problem, and it would be better for you emotionally to deal with it later. You're you're a little over your head. If I'm like, no, Tom, we're solving this now. We're gonna solve it now. I'm helping you obsess over it. That yeah. doesn't help. So, keeping these things in mind with what the other person's gonna have the most help from, rather than just saying, no, you're not running away from this argument right now, okay. We're going to fix this, oh, even yeah. though you're going to end up really depressed afterward because I'm not letting you think straight.
0: Dude, that's that's really good to hear. Um, I, I might have talked about this before, but I used to be like zero empathy, only fix the problem, like 100% solution driven. You know, like with girlfriends, oh, I have this problem. Okay, well, here's a solution. Let's fix it right now. You know what? And... I've had to learn like I have to be empathetic. I have to tell them everything's going to be okay and kind of let it blow over for a bit and then solve it later. But this really solidifies it.
1: Yeah, that, that you that makes have to a lot let them sense.
0: emotionally come down off of, you know, back down from the cliff, become a little level-headed about it and then help them solve the problem once they have been distracted and can think a little bit more clearly.
1: Yeah, you can be like, "Okay, so right now we're going to go do something else. We're going to get you feeling okay, but maybe maybe later." sometime later 6:30 again if you want we can talk about we can talk about it and see if there's a way to fix it but for now we're just going to we're just going to get you feeling better so that you can think straight because when we start obsessing about bad thoughts it is a very long and downward spiral
0: right so when they say it's the journey not the destination that applies perfectly to solving problems in your life because if the journey involves Uh, You know, getting off of that horrible emotional spiral and then solving the problem, you're just going to end up a lot happier. Yeah. So if you
1: can, you can get through that and then you can dispute effectively those arguments. Mm -hmm. Well, now, next time you feel that way, you're, you're going to be a lot better off. Maybe you won't even have to take a break and distract yourself because you'll have the disputations from last time. You'll just say, well, I remember that that's why I feel bad right now. I'm just really overwhelmed at work and it stresses me out. You know, it could It's just better long-term. And there are so many helpful examples about doing this with, um, well, helping yourself, using these techniques in a business environment at your job, using Mm -hmm. these techniques with your children. If you want to help your children get through things, like if the parents are getting divorced, lots of things that have been shown to give the children a tough time, these kind of tactics can help. Yeah, They've got a whole section on it. This book was just tremendously insightful to me as somebody who's gone through a lot of bouts of depression, not even not even going to try to diminish it a lot mm-hmm. throughout my life. This really explains some of the worst and best times. Yeah. So before
0: we wrap up here, and I think it's really cool that this book has like been so enlightening to you. I might have to check it out when I have some time.
1: Yeah. I love that it's a research-backed. It's not just... Yeah. You know, oh, he actually specifically says that, like, positive mantras, uh, these are dumb. Don't just, every day, I'm really good. I'm going to get better. He says specifically, these kind of mantras have never been shown to work. Mm. So he, since he's going against all of this, some of this other, like, mumbo jumbo self-help stuff, it even makes his case better mm-hmm. because he's saying, mine's research-backed. Right. This helps you.
0: So it's about having a true solid positive mindset that isn't just rooted in, uh, mantras and then dealing with bad things as they come up with these techniques. And, uh, so we had distract and dispute. The other one I wanted to add was, you know, when you're ready, analyze and solve, because if you fail a test and you distract yourself from what, what caused it, or you just tell yourself, you know, you just like dispute all the bad things your brain throws up. You do need to analyze like, okay, what did actually cause this? Oh yeah. And how can I solve it going forward? You know, and do that after you've calmed down a bit. Um, That was like one of the main points of my video on what to do if you fail the test, like give yourself a day or so to calm down a bit, take your mind off of it. But then afterwards you need to analyze, okay, what was the point of failure here? Because if we're going to do this again, we need to be ready to deal with it.
1: Yeah. So make sure you leave your disputations and everything with some actionable fixes. Yeah. So that it doesn't have to come up again. Or if it does come up again because it's something unavoidable that I don't have an example for, Mm -hmm. then at least you'll be better mentally prepared for it.
0: Yeah. So to wrap up, is there like a specific thing in your life that you've been applying this to or that you're going to try to apply this to?
1: Well, you know, this has been part of my example for like everything because it's such a big part of my life, but Mm. these ideas I'm going to use to help me get more motivated to work on some projects I have, work on language learning, simply because it was so easy to feel helpless during this last year when I couldn't control my healing, when my arms weren't working correctly, yeah, and when I couldn't program or type. So essentially I had f- forced helplessness upon myself The doctor and therapist told me that maybe it wouldn't fix itself. Maybe it wouldn't work out. Mm. So that made it really hard for me to work on anything else because I, what was the point? I'm broken. It's never going to be fixed. You know, permanent, personalized, everything, pervasive. So now I'm going to use these things very directly when I notice that that happens and say, okay, maybe I just shouldn't think about this right now. Uh, My arm hurts, and that is likely to make me spiral down into some obsessive thoughts. Instead, I'm gonna let them rest, and I'm gonna tackle this project tomorrow when I'm feeling better, and then I can actually get somewhere. Right. Cool.
0: I'm gonna use this. I've been using it to some degree already on a lesser injury, but um, you know how like my left knee's kind of screwed up. Yeah. Um, it's not like broken or anything, but I had a very common knee condition that many athletic boys get in their teenage years, but I never let it heal because I dumbly kept skateboarding and jumping off buildings and doing parkour. Classic teenage boy. I basically have two kneecaps and, um, you know, it'll hurt if it gets hit or if I like leave my legs bent for a long time, it'll hurt. But for years, I let that be an excuse for doing less athletically than I would have liked to do. And this year, uh, I think what triggered it was I literally some Reddit thread, which was like what, um, I think it was like what it was like about what kind of exercise are you really glad you started doing or was like way more effective than you thought would be. And one person was like flexibility because I have this bum knee and I always had an excuse about it. And then I started seriously doing flexibility training and I've essentially fixed it. And I read that and I was like, oh, that's me. I've been using this injury as an excuse and I basically had all this learned helplessness. Like I can't squat and I can't do all these things. My knees hurt. And this year I was like, no, I'm not going to let that limit me. So, uh, maybe I need surgery on it, but I'm going to find out if just being very serious about flexibility and going back to basics with my lifting technique and form, uh, will help. And it's only been two and a half months so far, but it's, uh, I've made some very good progress, and I'm going to keep doing that.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a good post to have seen because that—that's that's definitely learned helplessness. Telling you, give up physical stuff. Yeah, you're done.
0: Yeah, that's the so that's the one thing I might not be able to put in the show uh, show notes because I have no idea where that thread was. But
1: well, yeah, that's lost it's history. It's
0: somewhere now. on Ask Reddit. <laughs> 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 anyway, guys, so uh, is this is episode ninety nine? We are... Almost there. So close to 100. Yeah, I don't even know what to do for 100. I almost wanted to like record something from the top of the mountain when I was
1: skiing, but it was like so windy. We're going to record us having a party about (laughs) episode 100. Yeah. It's not going to be that helpful. There's just a mic in the corner. We're like drinking.
0: It'll be good though. (laughs) Anyway, guys, this being episode 99, if you want to get those show notes, they are over at CIGpodcast.com. Find the episode 99 link on the page and... We'll have everything I mentioned uh, linked up, including the book and the test and some of those uh, scientific studies. And also there are links to rate and review the show on iTunes if you wanna support it. Getting more ratings and reviews on the iTunes page really helps out. And I'm actually really stoked today because we got emailed from somebody at Apple who possibly wants to feature the show in some educational promotional stuff. So it's growing. Thanks in part to you guys. And uh, if you wanna help keep growing, that's a really good way to do it other than that hopefully you enjoyed this episode and yeah we'll see you next week stay cute
1: see ya